Well, again, I'd like to welcome all of you to this greatest feast day of the Christian year. It is without a doubt, historically unprecedented, the most special occasion of the Christian tradition. It has been observed with moral rigor and joy for nearly 2,000 years, and it is most assuredly a great day, a great day for all of us. Even more, it has been celebrated since before the Christian era. It is, in fact, the great Passover in a way. It is also the Exodus. It is, in a way, the answer to the words of Isaiah and Ezekiel. It is the answer to every longing that we find expressed in every single psalm in our Old Testament. It's a very special day. Now, I realize today... In our age, Easter is one of those holidays that seems, I think, enshrouded in a kind of polite tradition and color and comfort and in the anticipation of warmth and spring. Unlike Christmas, I think Easter almost seems less veiled in mystery, don't you think? Maybe even less complex in a way. You might even say with all of the pleasantries of uh, eggs and children, it can almost at times feel quaint, can't it? And who's to blame for this? I I have no clue. It's not my concern tonight. But what I want us all together to see this evening, what I want us to behold, I'll use an old word there. I want us to behold the upturning and apocalyptically joyful quality of Easter. It's apocalyptically joyful. You see, if we were to look at the goods that we find today, before we do anything else, We actually have to do the very simple work of rehearsing those steps that the disciples made. We have to focus in just for one moment on the experience of the first apostles who discovered this great Easter joy. So here's what happened. Jesus had died just like every other person who had been crucified under Roman authorities. His body was taken down from the cross, and two of his lesser-known disciples, secret disciples in fact, Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, and Nicodemus, a Pharisee, member of the Jewish council as well, they gave Jesus a, a dignified and costly burial. It's all detailed. Now, because his tomb was for the wealthy, it had an enormous stone that had been rolled over its entrance, and there were guards posted there. Jesus, as you know, had become very, very popular and controversial, and so they had soldiers guarding the entrance into his tomb, guarding his body. But now early, early in the morning, on the third day after his death, four women came to the tomb. There was Mary, his mother. There was Mary Magdalene, one of his closest friends. And then there were two others, not always mentioned, Salome and Joanna, or Junia, as she's later identified in the book of Romans. And they were going to his tomb because the day before had been the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath day, it was forbidden for Jews to be in the presence of dead bodies. You see, dead bodies were unclean, all detailed in Leviticus. And so they were going to finish out the embalming process. Now, this is important because it means even though they were faithful, these women, in honoring Jesus, they still thought that he was dead. You don't, of course, embalm living people. And so in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it focuses on how these women approached the tomb and then discovered, much to their great surprise, that the stone, immense stone, was rolled away. And then suddenly angels emerged from nowhere and told them that Jesus had been raised just as he had said. 
they say in Luke. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Great question. And yet even in this encounter, marvelous, it is not entirely obvious that these women believed. Because immediately after what they've experienced, they go and tell their other disciples, their friends, they say, they have taken our Lord and we, and we don't know where they've laid him. In other words, they're still speaking of him as if he's dead. But Peter and John hear this news. The beloved disciple, as John is called, they're amazed. And it says in the Gospel of John that they get up and they begin running to the tomb. Now remember, people didn't really run in the ancient world. It wasn't something that grown men typically did. But they can't help themselves. They can't stop. They simply run to see their closest friend. Now as they were on their way, we have to imagine surely their emotions were more complex than we might immediately think. Peter, Jesus' best friend, you'll remember, had denied him three times. And on that third time, Jesus had actually looked him in the eye and Peter knew in that moment instantly that he had failed miserably. And so maybe Peter's urgency here is tinged with some guilt. In any case, Peter and John begin running together. It says that eventually John outruns Peter and he gets there first. And when John gets there, he doesn't enter the tomb. The entrance, as you can imagine, would have been smaller than a modern-day door. It would have been carved out of stone. And people then, just as people now, didn't feel altogether comfortable going into dark, small places with dead bodies. So John bends down, and he looks inside, and he sees over in the corner, lying in a pile, the cloths that had enshrouded Jesus' body. Then Peter gets there. He catches up. And Peter, true to his character, he doesn't hesitate. He blunders immediately into the cave. He looks, and there he sees a pile of linen on one side, and then the cloth that was wrapped around Jesus' face, neatly folded up and laid on the other side. This is, of course, strange, because why would vandals ever take the time to steal a body and then neatly fold up all the garments that the body had been wrapped in? And so they're confused. Luke says that they are amazed. One gospel says that John believed and yet didn't understand. Regardless, perhaps they had some ember of hope, but they still most surely didn't understand what had happened. And in the most surprising way, they simply go home. They go home. But Mary Magdalene comes back. And she's alone. She's standing at the entrance of the grave, which was also a garden. And she's weeping. And she was weeping because she had watched her most trusted friend and master, the one who had brought her dead brother back to life. She watched him be condemned. She watched him be tortured, crucified, humiliated. And now his body had also been stolen. And she has absolutely nothing. And then suddenly this voice comes from nowhere. It says, woman, why are you weeping? And here she does something remarkable. She opens up her heart. She says, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where he is. Then the same question comes again, but this time it's from someone else. She thinks it's the gardener. It says, woman, why are you weeping? 
you can almost hear her frustration in this moment. She says, if you've taken him, please just tell me where you've put him. And then the man says her name. He says, Mary. And she recognizes the master's voice. And she cries out in their common language, teacher, rabbi. And it's right here, I think, in this very moment when Mary Magdalene proclaims teacher that we see all of history come together in a way that we have never seen before. Fear and dread become upended. The answer to all of our longings begin set in motion. It is a secret moment and it's the beginning of all things. Here's what I mean. Before we notice any of the significance here, we have to first notice the chaos that surrounds this moment. There's all kinds of running around, Mary and Peter and John. Nobody knows what's going on. None of them display any obvious expectation in Jesus' resurrection. In other words, they don't come to realize what's going on by anything that they have to offer. There is no sort of deductive logic that helps them discern the resurrected Christ. There's no sort of collaborative reasoning that leads them to a moment of uh, realization. And I think the same can be true for you and I, for all of us. We don't come to realize or to digest the truth of Easter, I think, through our own rational effort. See, you and I come to Easter from all sorts of places. Some of you here, no doubt, are here with anxiety. Some of you are here uh, by the grace of God. Some of you are here because someone dragged you. Some of you are here just to hear the music. Some of you are here out of sheer love or delight. There are people here who have come to experience the power of the resurrection from all different kinds of places. But here's the thing. The hope of the resurrection, it is not apprehended by your own piercing logic. It is given to you precisely wherever you are by virtue of you simply hearing Jesus' own voice and seeing his visible body. So I would encourage you, very simply, all here tonight, listen for the voice of Jesus Christ. See and discern in his body, the church, where he might be on the move. And whatever you hear or whatever you see, believe. Believe. (laughs) Simply believe. You won't regret it. Here's the second thing. Every aspect of this moment that we just read about, that I just detailed to you, where Jesus is standing with Mary in front of an empty tomb is intentional. And it is, in fact, a great culmination of God's own work throughout history. It's why we read this entire long slog through Old Testament readings, because here in this moment, something is fulfilled that none of us should miss. You see, hidden in this moment, Jesus takes us all the way back to the very beginning of creation. Remember, at the very beginning of all things in that story, there is a garden. And in that story, there is a man who is created by God. And in that story, with great joy, he receives his bride. Also in that story, he names her woman. And it's with her that he becomes the first steward, the first gardener of all creation. However, in that story, 
Everything in a moment takes a tragic turn and it ends with disobedience, rejection, and ultimately weeping. But did you notice here in this story, in this story we see the exact same thing but different. Here in this story there is also a man and a woman standing together in a garden. Here in this story the man appears as one recreated by the power of God. Here again, it is the same but different. In joy, he calls out, names his partner, woman. And in this story, she, only half wrong, believes that he is the gardener. Don't you see? The one that she addresses is, of course, not the gardener of a graveyard, but the gardener of a new creation. And here in this story, when this woman recognizes her beloved, she becomes a bride just like Eve, but all the goods flow in reverse because rather than turning from God, she recognizes his, his very righteousness and she calls him by his name. Teacher. Teacher, the one who perfectly displays and instructs the character of God the Father. Don't you see? Here in this moment, this is when the curse begins to be reversed. The last scene in the garden, it ended with disobedience, weeping, and isolation. But here in this scene, it is where all weeping ends. It's where disobedience turns to faith. And it's where isolation ends in absolute fellowship. Don't you see, friends, the resurrection of Jesus is the very beginning of sin's absolute downfall. And it is the beginning of all things being made new. It is where everything, all the struggle of sin... All of the strife of godlessness is being undone. And here's the last thing. It would be, I think, tempting to imagine that the resurrection is only about restoration or or mending that which has been broken. But you see, so much more happens in this moment. Because remember, when Mary sees Jesus, she doesn't recognize him. Did you notice that? It's very strange. She doesn't recognize him. And this occurrence goes on to happen again and again in various other resurrection encounters throughout the New Testament. Jesus has the same body. All of the scars are still there. Thomas touches them. He eats with people. He drinks with them. His body is all the same. But they still don't see who he is. Why? He's the same, but he's different. Here's what I'm getting at. The resurrection. The resurrection is about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake. All of our faith lives and dies on that moment. But it is also, friends, about more because it is not simple repair. It is the promise of a new creation. See, Lazarus, Lazarus was brought out of death into life. Jesus Christ was brought from death into glory. And his body was made new in some way that we don't fully understand. You see, most of us, I think, if we're being perfectly honest, we think of Christianity as something that can simply solve our problems. It can mend things that, can bro- that are broken. It can maybe even encourage our own self-esteem. But you see, in the resurrection of Jesus, when Jesus, the God-man, comes out of the tomb with his own body, but it is something glorious, transcendent, something more. It is the promise and the guarantee that everything wrong is fixed and then it is transfigured. 
And I, I'm not exactly sure how to communicate that in words. I'm not sure that there's a great way. But I imagine it a little like this. I borrowed this from famous pastor Eugene Peterson, applying it to our neck of, neck of the woods. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're on a hike in Percy Warner, just down the road. And it's February, it's cold. The trees are all bare. There are clouds in the sky. It's one of those sort of deadpan days in February where uh, the sky looks like steel. It's sort of wet. Everything is brown. Slowly you come out of the trail and then you get to the top of the stairs. Again, those stairs just down the road. And then I want you to imagine that in an instant, everything is suddenly spring. Your face is drenched in sunshine. All of the grass that you see going down that great hill, it's all green. The trees are swaying in a cool breeze on a warm day. There are flowers and animals. There's bird song. You see, everything is the same. You are in the exact same place, but everything, it's so different, isn't it? It's different. And I think that is maybe a small, simple disclosure of what the new creation will one day involve. You see, Jesus doesn't simply take us back to the garden. What Jesus does is he promises to rebuild his kingdom from the ground up, first displayed in his own resurrected body. And so remember, friends, this kingdom, it comes to all of us when our lives are all over the place, wherever you and I might be. It restores everything that has been broken. And it exceeds all of our expectations because we, by virtue of God's resurrected body and Jesus the Son, are lifted into the very life of God the Father. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.